Hi, welcome to another episode of Empathy in Action, where we invite people in from the community, people who give back and who are making a difference. And so I am Linda Sarkey, director of Kidsbridge Tolerance Center and also author of The Empathy Advantage, coaching children to be kind, respectful, and successful. I am so excited today inviting a friend in, Dr. Nani Ansari, professor of psychology from Ryder University, and we're gonna spend two sessions today. We're gonna to focus on problems, and then we're gonna do a second session on the solutions. What are problems without solutions? So we hope that you'll tune in for both of these sessions. So, without further ado, welcome Professor Nadia Ansari, friend. Thanks for having me, Lynn, I appreciate it. Thank you for making the time today. So we have a lot of conversations about these issues offline, and I thought it'd be nice that other people would want to hear what is going on for all of our youth, and in particular, you have a passion for Muslim youth, Muslim girls and boys, and I thought it'd be interesting for people to hear what is going on, what is the state of affairs, and um, what are the problems, of course, and then later on we'll, we'll delve into the solutions. Sure, sure. So um, just as background, I've been studying the issue of uh, bullying within the Muslim community for the last 10 years. Um, and we've seen a rise in Islamophobia and hate incidents targeting this community, in particular since 2015. And so um, what's happened is, is that, and this is not just something that, or an issue that pertains to the Muslim community, it pertains to all religious minorities in the US. And so we've seen not just an increase in bullying and hate incidents targeting Muslims, but we've also seen it with, um, with the Jewish community, the Sikh community, and the Hindu community as well. Can you just, I wanna interject because I was confused also in other people. The how do Sikh people within the umbrella of the Muslim community. Sikhs are Muslims, Muslims are not Sikhs. I think they people get confused. Yes, absolutely. The, the, uh, and certainly I'm not an expert on religion, um, but the Sikh, um, uh, Sikhism is a religion all uh, onto its own. Um, and it's often um, um, misunderstood to be part of Islam um, or an outshoot of Islam or Hinduism, and it is a religion onto itself. Um, the Sikh community in particular has seen um, a, an extremely high incident of hate um, towards, in particular, the male, um, uh, male Sikh individuals because of the turban. Right. And so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the Sikh coalition um, uh, has conducted research and they found a 267% increase in the bullying of Sikh young men. Mm. And that's, as you noted, you know, largely because of the wearing of the turban. Right, and I think children in school with the turbans are also harassment, Exactly. Bullying. And so what we see is, is the wearing of religious symbols often increases the risk. Mm. So um, Muslim females wearing the hijab or the headscarf, um, Jewish young men wearing the yarmulke. And so um, the wearing of religious symbols may be uh, a risk factor uh, for bullying, and yet we see a religious identity, a strong religious identity as a protective factor. And so it's, it's really quite a paradox that uh, a strong religious faith might 
protect an individual, um, increase their self-esteem, and you know, um, give them a, another identity to strengthen who they are and to uh, strengthen their coping. And yet, the wearing of religious symbols may, in and of itself, be right. a risk factor. Right, and we'll turn in solutions to that, because I've come across that research, too, which is so heartwarming. Religious orientation and ethnic identity strong helps children stand up and speak out. Absolutely. Which is so, but we'll, we'll circle back to that in the solution segment. Sure, and just to add, um, in my own research, uh, where I've looked at within the Muslim community, the role of ethnic identity. Ethnic identity, in my research also, suggests that it's a protective factor. So in addition to religious identity, um, ethnic identity, you know, country of origin, um, belonging to a certain group, practicing the norms and cultural practices and beliefs within that group um, can also be protective. So. That's something that um, is really important from a scholarly perspective and from a prevention perspective to understand what are the risk and protective factors associated with bullying. And so I want the listeners to know, when we talk about prevention, I mean, intervention is more active, you're intervening, but we are in the prevention business. I, as yeah. the director of Kidsbridge Tolerance Center, to teach children to um, advocate for themselves, to tell an adult. So prevention is preventing bias and preventing discrimination and stuff like that, so. Absolutely. Your research is primarily? So my training is as a developmental psychopathologist, and that is an applied prevention science. You need to explain. <laughs> it's getting a little geeky here. All right, so this is a psycho, what? So developmental psychopathology yes. is a very specific uh, area bridging developmental psychology, mm -hmm. which is the understanding of change across the lifespan. So developmental psychology, fusing it with clinical psychology, which is the study of disordered behavior, um, psychopathology, abnormal behavior, disordered behavior, etc. Interesting, okay. So my area looks at the intersection of human development mm. and mental illness. And so it's an applied science because we want to use empirical insights, what do we learn from the research, to then point the direction for intervention and prevention. Beautiful. And so my work, by, by its very sort of nature of you know, my training and the disciplinary focus, my work has always looked at risk and protective factors and how that can inform solutions. Exactly. And one of the reasons I was so excited to find you and, and, and learn of your work is that there is a paucity of this work. I think for all, just in our country, that we need to spend more time on our youth today, post-COVID, even pre-COVID, we have a mental health crisis, crisis for our children. And so I think it's more important for people like you, thank you for the work that you do, but we need more research on different, how the children are coping developmentally, Muslim children, Jewish children, Asian children, um, Sikh children, Baha'i children, to better understand how we can help them, what the problems are. Like for myself, being in the Kidsbridge Tolerance Center, I was shocked maybe 15 years ago, and this is what really alerted me, that uh, the children would share, and the Muslim children said they were called terrorists. 
and uh, and it happened time and time again. And wh what a what a thing for a child to live with that they are viewed, you know, in terms of self-esteem and self-agency, that they are now the other, you know, sure. and and the trauma that goes with that otherness for for very young children. Well, and it's interesting because. Um Interesting and sad, right, that Muslim equals terrorist in um, mainstream media, and mm, mm. Um, there's a lot of uh, misinformation also in our schools about Islam, and Islam is not portrayed in a fair and modern light, mm. and the focus um, for the last, you know, since 9-11 has been on 9-11 as a focal point um, in American history, which it is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all Muslims uh, ascribe to these, you know, very, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, fanatical ways of thinking about right. religion and politics together. Minority, 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 but we have right. a, we lose our sense of proportions in this society, in the media, of course. Um, sure, and even in, in just general conversations with folks about Muslims, there's, um, sort of an assumption a lot of times that Muslims are un-American or that they're immigrant uh, groups. Muslims are long-standing Americans. Um, you know, Muslim-American students are, you know, your, your, for teachers, they are your students. For neighbors, they are your neighbors. Um, and Doctors, so, lawyers, accountants. Absolutely, yeah. and so Muslim and American, they, th those, that hyphenated self, right? Mm, that Muslim mm. hyphen American is really critical for us to recognize that, you know, members of this community are not other. They are part of the fabric of America. And so... Um, we're all refugees. <laughs> we really are all refugees. And Native Americans were here first, so... Right. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And so the marginalization and othering of various groups, not just Muslims, but Jews and, you know, um, various folks of different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. The othering is really the first step towards bullying, the first steps towards hatred, because it makes it okay. It makes it okay to joke about, makes it okay to demean, makes it okay to use stereotypes towards individuals of these various uh, groups, and then it opens the door for harassment, intimidation, and bullying. Right. So let's talk about how young this starts, because the research, as limited as it is, is really alarming that children can feel HIV, harassment, intimidation, um, and bullying four, five years old. That Even three. Even, Even three. three. So um, that's why we are in the prevention field and want others to understand that we have to start earlier with this anti-bias education, which Kidsbridge is getting into now. We have a preschool program. Another <coughs> program we have that I think is so valuable, I don't know if they're teaching religion in school anymore, is the golden rule, where in every religion, treat others as you would like to be sure. treated. So we, we really need to espouse this and teach younger kids so that ideally that they grow up and they're going to be kinder and 
the otherness recedes. So we're hoping for the next generation this goes better. So tell us about your research. I don't know how young your research goes, but what are you finding? Do you, you research girls and boys? Yes. Or, and so what are you finding out, I guess, good and bad with your uh, research? So um, in general, the samples that I have worked with are ages 12 to 18, and then um, so within you know um, middle school to high school, mm. and then um, my more recent work has looked at college uh, populations. Mm. And um, I found that a prevalence rate of around 27 to 30%, uh, a prevalence rate of bullying within the community um, which is significantly higher than national averages. So the Centers for Disease Control and the National Center for Education Statistics both report the annual bullying rates around 19 percent, 19 or 20 percent. Is your research national? It's not my just research, New Jersey. Actually, my research is not national. Okay. So recruiting from the Muslim American community is particularly difficult because there is a lot of fear mm. within the community mm. about how their information is going to be used. And so when you assure them it's anonymous, they're still it afraid. It still doesn't. Okay, it, okay. It's necessary to gather the sample to make those assurances, but right. we, and because we need consent from both parents and children in this type of research. Wow. So our, my samples are much smaller than I would have liked. Yeah. But my research does both um, a quantitative, like a survey-based focus, uh -huh. as well as focus groups. So what's unique about it is, is that we can understand how frequently this happens and what are the variables that make it more likely or less likely for someone to be harassed, intimidated, and bullied. Interesting. But then I also have the focus groups, which then explain the process behind the numbers with my participants in my participants own words and so those focus groups were very interesting because we I started to learn about how um, identity is affected by um, Islamophobia and by these experiences mm, mm. and how for some kids there is an experience of shame about their Muslim identity sadly yes. sadly yes and hiding that identity mm. until they're comfortable with either a friend or a group that they can then sort of out themselves as Muslim. Mm. And so um, that information was really telling to me. The other thing that I found was that roughly 50% of the sample reported being afraid of being bullied. Not that they had been bullied, right. but that there was this anxiety about being bullied. Mm -hmm. And I think those numbers are probably higher today than they were several years ago when I collected well, those data. Well, cyberbullying, so they can be bullied in school, they can be bullied online. D does your research look into the, the yes. universe of cyberbullying and that, that anxiety getting online, you'd never know what Absolutely. you're going to read. And bots are spreading false information. So what, what does that look like for a Muslim child online? So my research was, my data were collected several years ago. And um, my rates were around 10 to 12% on cyberbullying. Um, the national rates are around 15%. Mm -hmm. and But those are more recent statistics. Mm -hmm. um, 
Hinduja and Pachin um, are um, uh, researchers who have specialized in exploring cyberbullying. And they look at religious minorities. They're one of the only folks who have data, and these data are available online. Wow. And they parse it out by religious groups. Oh, good. Um, Muslims are around, uh, report around a 30% uh, rate of cyberbullying. When you compare that with a national average of around 15%, mm. now again, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of trying to make these comparisons across different data sets. Yes. But you know, if we make that comparison, it's roughly double what the national average is. Um, and so, and we see similar rates for uh, for Jews as well, but it's less than what we see for Muslims right. in terms of cyberbullying. Right. Well, that makes me really sad, cyberbullying, because when we were kids, you leave school at three o'clock, the bullying, the meanness, the name calling stopped, stopped. And now for kids today, it's twenty four seven. So that's very difficult. So. Why, why do you do this work? What, what, was there a moment in time that you thought, you saw the paucity of research and you thought, this is something I want to do, you're raising two Muslim children. What struck a chord for you and why do you do this and how does this make you feel? Sure. Um, so as a Muslim American and as a parent of two Muslim children, um, I, it's personal for me um, and for my community. Um, as a scholar, I feel that I can um, shed light on the issue and again try to inform these prevention, you know, areas for the community. But what's interesting about sort of my path is that the more that I explored um, Islamophobia and bullying within my community, the more I realized it was not a Muslim issue and is not a Jewish issue. It is an issue of any minority, LGBTQ plus individuals, any minority group um, is at risk for, for bullying. And with the rise of hate that we've seen over the last seven years or so, um, I feel like we feel as though we, we have to do more to advocate um, and make a change. So in the second section, we're going to focus on solutions, but I want to circle back to the problem of parents. And so again, bias. In the face of bias, parents and, and some teachers, but not all teachers, are not trained, and they don't sure. know what to do. And, and there's, we're still fighting this man up kind of you know, attitude, man up, and it made me, I, I was lecturing once, and a guy came up to me, it made me the man I am today. Well, some kids are you know, scarred, low self-esteem, they may have to go to another school. And children today are harming themselves. So this is very, sure. very serious. So I wanted you to spend maybe a couple minutes on the challenge we face with Muslim adults. Some of them may be um, immigrants from another country. Some may be uncomfortable standing up and speaking out. They don't know how, they're not practiced, or they're afraid. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, I, I think you, you mentioned most of it, Lynn. Um, a lot of uh, immigrant Muslim families are afraid to cause ripples, you know, don't draw attention to yourself or make a big deal. Um, and, and truly, a lot of Muslim kids don't report bullying. We know that in general, 
in, you know, in terms of the bullying literature, we know that a lot of children don't report. But we see that even more with Muslim kids. And in my own research, in the focus groups that we conducted, mm. a lot of times the kids said things like, I didn't bother, I didn't want to bother my parents. I didn't want to burden them because they're already dealing with, you know, um, sort of the typical immigrant issues right. of, you know, language barriers, economic struggles, et cetera. So they didn't want to burden yeah. their parents. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's a very interesting thing that we need to be sensitive to. Um, so in terms of um, uh, Muslim American parents, I think it's important to understand that, you know, if you know that your child is being bullied, it's important to um, get acquainted with the anti-bullying policy of the school and mm -hmm. demand that the school act on those policies. And you may need an advocate with you. You may need a translator with you. You may need someone to bridge that cultural gap if it, if it exists. Um, but there has to be a call for action on the part of the parent requiring the school to do something. Right, right. I was just thinking about the Afghan community. I know there were 15,000 Afghanis or Afghani families in Fort Dix, and so they now, I think, are out and about New Jersey and other states. And that challenge and difficulty, whereas they're just trying to survive, and these are not going to be the kind of parents who probably don't speak sure. English, with Muslim kids that, you know, the kids may not be wearing the right clothes or wearing the right food, that it's just an uphill battle. And if we could purposefully train children and teachers and counselors to welcome them and make them feel, in fact, I just saw a video of two Ukrainian kids going to a school and like the whole school was in the in the lobby applauding these two poor Ukrainian children and they were bewildered and they didn't know what to look at and, and, and how to, you know, react to that overwhelming, but um, not saying that's the right way to do that, but just to, to welcome kids, um, you know, who have been othered or who are refugees or whatever. So we have a long sure. ways to go, including the parents. Back to like when I faced issues of bias or discrimination, discrimination, I would never tell my parents. And I think, I don't know, is there research on that? Do most kids not tell their parents? But they've never been educated how to do it. Sure. It's okay to tell your parents, you know? And this whole snitching culture, too, I think is, is harmful. Well, there's so many things that you said that I wanted to respond to. Um, first, regarding um, refugees, we have to also recognize that they're particularly vulnerable. They may have trauma histories mm, coming in, mm, right. and so they're particularly vulnerable. So um, educators, community members, you know, it's important for them to recognize that this is a very vulnerable group who may need additional support. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, is that for parents in terms of, and again, you know, we keep talking about the problem and the solution together because yes. it's hard to sort of disconnect those two. Indeed. But it's, it's really critical for parents to keep the lines of communication open with kids, and particularly teens who are starting to separate a little bit, spend more time with their peers and mm -hmm. the peer context sort of gain salience during adolescence. It's really important for parents to push through and continue to connect so that they can keep the lines of communication open. And if there are warning signs that a child may be bullied, they could follow up on that. 
And so that's also an important prevention, you know, from a prevention standpoint, right. is keeping the lines of communication open between parents and kids. Right. And because my, my fascination, my obsession is empathy, that the parents in a unit where everybody needs to be more empathetic, that the parents can be more empathetic to walk in the shoes of their children who may be struggling, that the children also can walk in the shoes of their parents who are maybe in a new culture or who don't want to, you know, advocate for themselves or their family. So walking in other shoes, I think, is a system, system upon which it, it can inform and fuel prevention strategies that everybody really needs to be helping each sure. other. More active listening, which we'll talk about in the next session for um, solutions, so. Sure, and I think um, for parents to share those stories of discrimination in the workplace or, you know, stories of growing up that, you know, may not paint them in the most, you know, lovely light, but to say, yes, I've experienced that too. Here's how I handled it, or here's how I wish I'd handled it, right, right. or here's, you know, what I would have liked to have said to my parents. And it opens the door, you know, um, to to have those connections. So yeah. the sharing of stories, I think, is also important. That's a really good point. So I, I think that's a powerful way. So when I'm talking to fourth graders in the Tolerance Center, I would say, when I was in fourth grade, you know, I was teased and I was bullied and how I handled it. And you can hear a pin drop because the kids see me as this very confident grown-up adult. And it's, oh my goodness, it happened to her too. And I think it, it, it lessens the isolation. They don't feel so othered and unique. So that is a powerful strategy. Sure, and, and you know, bullying is associated with shame oftentimes for the target. And to acknowledge that shame, and there's nothing to be ashamed of, but there is that feeling yeah, of shame, yeah. which is not always rational, yeah. right? Um, and so um, it is important to sort of, you know, uh, l let kids know that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay. This is the only way that I can help you is if I know. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of work to do. Absolutely. So I think we're going to... Um, Stop part one and move to part two, where we're going to be looking at the positive side of solutions. We'll use the empathy lens to see that we can inform teachers, kids, parents, and see if we can figure out a way to move forward in a very positive way. So thank you for coming for problems. Don't go away. <laughs> we'll be exploring solutions. So I want to thank you for visiting us today. Empathy in Action, Using an Empathy Lens. So delighted to have my friend here, Dr. Ansari, who's done a lot of primary research on understanding bias discrimination um, against Muslim youth. And in our next session, we will be exploring solutions Hopefully you'll learn some things, maybe a couple tips, and maybe there's a couple things that you can do. So thanks for visiting us, and we'll see you soon in part two. Bye-bye.